Let's uh, jump on to the next record because that one to me, you know, showed so much uh, growth, you know, in what you guys were doing. Um, Really strong, solid record. What what changed, you know, what was different in the whole process around that one? Okay, so the next one was like Zagora or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So what happened now? It went wrong. More t- more than it went right. It kind of was going so wrong, and then right at the end, it went right. Now let me tell you what happened. We had uh, moved studios from Alpha Studios to Sigma Sound, and Sigma had just installed a MCI Digital Desk. And I don't know. I oh, I hate digital. Now I'm starting to like it because. Now it sounds more palatable. Um, it sounds warmer now. Um, we have um, decoders and um, sound um, sound cards that are more analog sounding. And I think the target is to make digital sound analog for most um, sounds um, applications to software. But when they first made that digital sound, uh, even though the desk may have cost 250000 and, and it was a great studio, the sound was wrong. It just sounded hollow, glassy, like a machine didn't sound. Yeah. yeah, tinny. It was thin. Um, well, you know, with me, I, I like velvet curtains as a sound. If you could look at my sound, it would look like velvet curtains be thick and warm and you just want to roll around in it. Our base is thick and warm. I love all of that stuff. Now, it does come with the price of hiss. Okay, so I get why we're doing moving away from analog, but it was just too quick for me. So they had this whole thing going on with this digital thing. They were selling it to us, but they didn't sell it to us before we got there. They waited until we, you know, actually got in and then they said, guys, we're going to be working with this Fairlight machine, Fairlight synthesizer, and we're gonna be working with this digital Studio A, it's gonna be yours for two months, and you're gonna have great fun. And it was a nightmare. First of all, the Fairlight is kind of the first time we worked with a sequencer in the songwriting. Uh, I know Nikki, Nikki kind of, he, he, he understood that we loved the sequencing side of making music and our music was um, sounding more and more like that drum machine thing was deliberate. So I, I guess he thought, let's just try and work with the Fairlight synthesizer and um, make it more of a robotic type of uh, futuristic sound. And so we worked with two guys, two programmers that, you know, they were really clued up on the Fairlight. And a couple of things happened with that. When you put the information in, um, depending on putting that information in, it's a bit like when you're using your, I don't know if you know what a door is, uh, D-A-W, the works digital audio workstation. Um, if I'm working, say, with Eric, and we say we're going to put in a couple of different baselines, the person who puts the baseline in has, to, has a certain feel, and it's like, it's like a tape recorder. And basically, it was we were working with these two guys, and we would tell them, or we would be playing the part actually, 
but it would be once. You so the baseline for say, stay a wild child. Boom, 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 That was it. Thank you guys. We go sit down and watch them process that for about a day and make it sound fat and make it sound all this stuff. We'd be bored out of our heads. We were like, oh man, this is terrible. And we was really, it was becoming boring. Um, so then, and it was such a long process as well because it was a lot of programming of the song and then you would go to mix and it was sounding very mechanical it sounded wrong, wrong, wrong. Um, and it was good. We had little Indian sounds and we could use all these different sounds in our music. But the sound of the Fairlight synthesizer and the sound of the digital recording was getting on my nerves. It was, too, it was like listening to a, a machine in a newspaper factory. It just sounded really thin and just not right so we did um we i got into a little bit of a fallout with martinelli over this and this is where he tells me to concentrate on my bass playing um it was quite funny actually you know because i was you know complaining now and saying no i don't sound right look at this mix and uh, i was like creating mutiny i think he felt, he felt that i was creating some type of mutiny but i'm very passionate about the music and i i, I don't want us to be there because the names, you know, because it was Nikki or it was um, Bruce, his engineer. I, you know, I don't want that. I want the music to sound like some, the people who worked on it enjoyed it and loved it. And it doesn't really matter who's working on it. Um, but that's when you're young and you don't really have the respect that you should have for these guys. I think I may have handled it a little bit brash. Uh, Cause I, you know, when you're in the studio situation, you're burning hundreds of dollars an hour and people are comfortable with your song and you're not, you know, it can get very awkward. So that happened a lot. And we ran out of time and we had done Stay a Wild Child. We'd done uh, most of the songs on the album. Stay a Wild Child was the best song. And uh, not, not saying that it was a bad album, but it just didn't have... It didn't sound like hanging on a string. It, it sounded like we were going for that with Stay a Wild Child, but it was just too sophisticated. And there was no grooves on, on the album. Well, Slow Down went to number one, though. Yeah, but here's the thing, right? Slow Down wasn't on the album right, at that point. We've done all of these songs except for Gonna Make Your Mind, Slow Down. And uh, there was another song called Johnny Broadhead, which these songs weren't uh, on that record yet and Johnny Broadhead didn't actually make that record but what had happened was from watching the two guys um Randy and Jim um these two guys that were programming the Fairlight I kind of had an idea that maybe I should get into this sequencing thing a little bit more so I I bought a Lin 9000 and I picked it up at the airport we ran out of time with this session. We normally take two months in Philadelphia and the album's finished. But we were into Christmas. We were there two and a half months and the album was nowhere near being finished. There was no great single. 
sounded very rattly. And for if you're looking at the past, this album was in trouble. So when we got back to England, we had a guy called Erskine Thompson. And Erskine, he was like our, he wasn't like a manager, but he was a part of the management. He was our disco promotions man, which is like a guy that tells you, he gives you the SP on whether your songs are danceable or not. Uh, you probably call it something else in America, but when you're trying to make uh, urban music, you need people like this. And he was very good at what he did. Uh, he said, let me hear this album. So he said, all right. We, we was driving along. And um, before we get to that part, let me just say that I bought a sequencer from watching the two guys sequence that record. And I went home with it. And I had to buy a transformer, but when I set it all up and got it going, I was able to make music straight away. The first thing that happened was I made this reggae song. Um, that is slow down, the reggae song. Um, they had the reggae bass line, it was dub wise. And it was like the song was like do 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 with the horns, and it was like real dub wise reggae. So there was that. Then there was another one that was going to make you mine, which was basically as you hear it now today. Um, and I had um, made these songs, but I was very worried because this was like the first time that I, me on my own, I'd made songs, played keyboards, played the bass, played everything. And I was a bit worried about Jane and Steve being shafted or feeling like I was doing everything by myself. So I kind of experimented with how I would roll the idea of these tunes out. So I did Gonna Make You Mine um, at my mom's house in my mom's in my little bedroom there. I, I called Jane and I said, Jane, do me a favor. I've got this song I'm writing. Um, it's not for us. It's just uh, an idea I've got. Could you just come over and just sing? gonna make you mine and she said yeah sure so she came over and she just sung the chorus and that's that's that was just the end of that so fast forward now to um about two weeks later we're in england it was christmas and erskine thompson he's demanding to hear the record we played him the record that we were recording this is agora and he listened to it and he said man you're in trouble said you guys are in big trouble that album don't sound like nothing like the same group that came out with hanging on the string you sound like you're disappearing up your asses um you sound like uh, you, you need you're in you're in trouble man this is it you ain't got no other songs so i then said well i've got some more songs and i had this slow down idea which was a reggae song um and then i had the gonna make your mind and i had this other idea which was called johnny broadhead and he heard them and he said, this needs to go on your album now. So what happened was uh, we recorded Gonna Make You Mine. We recorded uh, Johnny Broadhead. Um, and that was excellent. We did it in like a week. All the, wrote the song, lyrics, everything. We, and the music was already done. So it was just a matter of going into the studio and just finishing off the vocals and stuff. And then we went back to America to finish off our album. And I played Slow Down as a reggae song to Nick Martinelli 
And I said, Nikki, I've got this idea, man. It's just got something about it. I think you should hear it. So he, he said, yeah, let me hear it. So we, I played it to him. I said, it's, only thing is, brace yourself, okay, because it's reggae. He said, and it came on as I said that. And he looked at it. He said, that ain't no reggae. I said, yes, it is. It's reggae. He said, no, man, that ain't reggae. He said, I'll tell you what you do. Just as he was walking off, he said, you need to do that again with the 808 beat. And I said, well, that's that's it? That's the information you got for me? He said, yep. When you're doing it, think of Kenny Burke. Give it all you got. And then he walked off. That was it. So then I went home to our apartment. Uh, Jane was eating cornflakes. Steve was in the back. And um, we had no equipment set up. Uh, I took a lot of equipment home with me to do that. We had the 808. It was all, everything was in cases. So I kind of, I think I literally grabbed the table of equipment that we had. And it just had wires and stuff and dragged it into a laundry room. I found a plug and uh, dragged the whole table in there. And within a couple of hours, I was set up like all the wires and leads were going all over the place. And I started to work on this drum machine, um, this um, drum pattern for um, Slow Down. So I was doing the drum pattern and I think everyone was like, turn it down, you know, you're getting on our nerves. And then I put the bass line in. When I put the bass line in now, I could feel it was just silence in the house. Everyone was now listening. And then I was trying to come up with the hook. So I said, slow down. Cause I can't see your feet. No, nah, no, nah, that's not right. Slow down. Um, I'm not in your seat. And then someone shouted, I can't take the heat. I was like, okay, right? And they started to come in the room. And then everyone got around the you know, piano. Steve came in with his DX7. And then he, he actually did the keyboard parts for the chorus. And then went back to Nikki with the idea. He said, look, Nikki, I think we got something here. So he said, all right, let me hear it. So when we played it to him there, he said, that's what I'm talking about. He said, I'll tell you that weren't no reggae. So I said, all right, cool. But I said, Nikki, one thing. I'm not going to record this song in a digital studio. All right, so you're going to have to think of some kind of way to do this analog. And he kind of... He didn't say nothing at the time. He just got up and walked off. And then they called a session in the evening, uh, like a Monday evening. Um, and it was in a smaller studio, an analog studio with normal tape. And the session was just wicked. It went down so beautiful. And so that song in particular is one of my favorite songs because, because of the whole digital analog thing. And it ended up being the song that saved the album, really, because I think it was our first single. Did, so were any records actually pressed or they hadn't been pressed yet without that? No records were pressed. The album wasn't finished. Um, but what we managed to do, we had some good songs, but they just wasn't, they were too sophisticated and they just weren't songs, jump up songs. You know, um, first time you hear it, you know, you, you're, you're latched in straight away. And they weren't bad, but we didn't have no no hits. So this is what um, Erskine had, had mentioned to us, that, you know, it's not bad, but, you know, it's just minutiae without the hits. Yeah. You know, without two or three hit records, this this is just 
Well, saying. I mean, it's such a credit to you and your. Well, I mean, you got the tip from him, but the sensibility. Right. You know, so much of the '80s music got overly sterile, and I mean, right. when you hear that eighty sound, you know, so much of it is sort of, you know, uh, you know, his stuff could have been a lot better. Um, mm-hmm. So it's to your credit that you uh, fought against that for sure and yeah, got a big yeah, hit but, out of it. Yeah. Um, I, I was going, I wasn't finished with that. I was properly going the opposite way because I think if you listen to my work on um, Look How Long, I was making it more sparse as I was, you know, he was put. Nicky would put a lot of things in, and Steve, because they were keyboard players, you know, they like all of that. But, um, well, Nicky's not a keyboard player, but he likes that whole Kashif thing, that whole SOS band thing. Um, but I would, I, I like it just really, just bass line and drums, really. I'd like a female to sing over that. Uh, I think that's sexy, you know, you've got a big bass line. Um, we got this music in England called Lovers Rock. It's like reggae. And girls, when they sing over it, they sing over a very heavy bass line. And that that really is a lot of loose ends where you've got the bass line and you've got the singer. So, you know, we kind of, I, I think that was the first point that me and Nikki started to not clash, but just sort of move in different different ways. I, think. I was curious as far as Jane uh, goes in her style, on that record in particular, I picked up to me sounded like influences of like Charday and some Tina Marie. Wow. Um, okay. you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, she was a big. Jane is definitely a Charday fan. Tina Marie definitely. I mean, we know some of the members of her band, and some of those people became friends of ours because uh, I think they were from Philadelphia. Like I know Doug Grisby, the bass player, and her MD. He's from Philly and he used to pop into our sessions a lot. And she was big when we were up up there. So yeah, those were big vocal influences. But Jane was really influenced by Shalimar. I mean, I couldn't believe when I listened to Jane's voice, I'd hear, you know, um, Sarah Vaughan, a little bit of Ella, um, some Diana Ross, and she'd be like, "No, I only listen to Shalimar." <laughs> I'd be like, "God, me. She used to drive me nuts. You know, she was just gifted. She just had that gift. So the uh, third record then uh, was what two years later, the real Chuckaboo, right. Chucky Boo, Chucky Boo, the real Chucky Boo, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where where that title come from? Ah, uh, now my mum used to describe street people bad company. She used to say to me. You don't want to hang around with them people. Them people are the real Chucky Boo. And she'll say it in a Jamaican way. So she'll say, um, and and then sometimes you'd hear it in a sound system. They'd say, and so my them girl, them are the real Chucky Boo. Right? So that means them people are rubbish. So them people are street. Them people are ghetto. So my mom would say, yeah, don't mess around with them people. Them, them, people, are, them people are Chucky Boo, yeah. So when I told... Um, when I was just fooling around on the bus, and I said, "So are them people out here, Chucky Boo?" And I, and I was just singing you know, along a couple of rhymes, and Jane, she started laughing. She's like, "Oh man, what's that? What's the real Chucky Boo?" I said, "Well, you know, that's just just fun." You know? She said, "No, no, I need to know. Tell me now." But it's fun. It's just you know, people just 
you know, having a laugh. It's, it's not even language. It's just, um, you know, what you'd call, you know, rubbish folk or bad company or, well, we got to call our album that. Like, no, it's negative. You know, because it's Chucky Boo is just like people you chuck away, you know, just, and she's like, no, no, it sounds like what we should be calling our, our album. So every meeting that we had, when we came up, when we were trying to come up with names, Jane would be like, no, it's going to be called The Real Chucky Boo. And then after a while, we stopped fighting it. <laughs> we just said, all right, then. So that was right. That was the, the, the reason for the title. You blame her. <laughs> well, and then, and then you actually had to come up with a track that worked for that name too, right? Right. All right. I mean, the whole Chucky Booth thing, it was medley. I think that's, we talked Mr. Bachelor and all that stuff. I mean, that was, that was crazy because that came around. That was the beginning of the end, really, that album. Because I was in the studio on my own. That was, you know, and I think it was one day I was in the studio all day on my own and I came up with um, Tomorrow, Mr. Bachelor, um, yeah, Mr. Bachelor and um, Just Gotta Have It All. It's just one track, but I just kind of, because I was waiting, I was bored. I made it 20 minutes long. I was like, you know, if I just mess around with this. And before you knew it, everything I was doing was starting to fit. And then we'd have to do it on the next track. And then it started to be fun. And by nine o'clock, I had like three songs all in one. And you know, Jane came in around about 10, 30. She was really late for that session. And um, Steve, he came in about half an hour later. And I remember playing it to them. And they were like, this guy. <laughs> you could just see them looking at each other like, this guy, what are we going to do with this guy? <laughs> So then Jane said to me, you know, what do you hear on this? You know, and it was Mr. Bachelor. And so I just uh, sing in the, it was like a Michael Jackson thing. You know, it was something like that. But it was like, so I could hear that little vibe going on there and some little melodies. And so she took all the little melody ideas and she went away and wrote. I think probably her best song, Mr. Bachelor, the way she wrote the lyrics is really good. I really take my hat off to her for that one. But then, yeah, Steve, he kind of faded us, faded on us on that one. Because that was the one where he was now um, a producer in demand, if you like. That album was the album that Virgin said, you can do your own album. We believe that you're good enough now. Because of what had happened with... Johnny Broadhead, Gonna Make You Mine. That was us. Well, we didn't, that wasn't Nicky, Gonna Make You Mine. And it wasn't, and he really, even the five um, star, what we did with Nicky when we arranged it, it was like a loose ends record. It was like me and Steve doing stuff. But when Steve um, got to do his productions, he would go off and do them on his own. So I was just basically, you know, in the studio a lot doing. A lot of stuff on my own, which I kind of put up with it on that one, on that album, because it wasn't that bad. It was just now and again I found, you know, I was on my own doing songs. But then it kind of got worse after that. When that, that was the beginning of, you know, me in the studio and waiting for Jane and Steve to turn up and then 
Steve would turn up. Models, they they just uh, sitting there, you know, just having fun, giggling, and you just can't get no work done, you know. It's, you start performing rather than writing, and uh, you know, it would just he just went through that phase where he was just not not that interested no more. I, I guess he was getting a lot of work, production work. Uh, he was having a good time and he was losing interest a little bit and it started to become a little bit of a chore for him. I could feel that, that he, you know, when I was, I'd get there, he wouldn't be there. When I was leaving, he was already had left. And that is not the Steve that was there at the beginning. You know, he, he, he would be, you could just see him waving to you in the, in the other room saying, yeah, see you later, Carl. And yeah, I'm there trying to work out the next song and Steve would be like waving to you. And so I guess he, you know, we just kind of trailed off. Musically, though, Carl, I mean, like watching you was a really I mean, a heavy drum beat and the real Chucky Boo was like a, I, I liken it to being sort of a, a funk epic, you know, it's like a wow. suite with like a, centered around funk, you know, and yeah, um, yeah. good stuff. And, and um, is it ever too late? I thought, you know, I was hearing some kind of AWB and Isley kind of influence. And... Right, yeah. See, that uh, is it ever too late. And those songs, they they were really, all of that was done in England. And even we mainly produced that record in England. But Nikki came in at the end because Jane insisted that Nikki be involved in, in, in all our productions and stuff. But we love Nikki anyway, but most of that was done um in uh elephant and castle in england but um is it too ever is it ever too late i think a friend of mine stephen dante he he's a great singer and he helped me with that beginning that oh he would do that and i'm like wow how'd you do that like, I'm, su I'm surprised the album wasn't a hit actually yeah it could have been i guess it could have been the song that that could have been a single but they kind of missed it. I think they uh, they went for Bachelor and they for something else. But as I say, you know, in England, we didn't get the airplay. So I know definitely if it was going to be a hit, it would be America. In England, we, we missed out on Bachelor. On that whole album, um, uh, Chucky Boo, we didn't really have any hits. And it was like, I think that was a strain on us, really. I felt like Remote Control had some cameo influence going on, too. Yeah, that was, now nah, I'll tell you what, that was a joke. I mean, we was in there singing and was coming up with different lines. And I started um, taking a mickey out of, um, was his name Larry? Uh, Larry Blackman? Yeah. <laughs> Ow. <laughs> and they're like, no, Jane, again, you should sing the whole thing like that. Like, Jane, we're just fooling around. No, it sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, she'd always get into silly stuff. She'd get me doing silly stuff. I missed that about her. There was another one where we did the... Um, he came from over the hills. He stole my land and my tobacco or something like that. And they made me take the tobacco line out and put something else in. But she would be, you know, all about them little funny little things. So, yeah, that, that was funny. Well, I, I hope I'm not out of line. For me personally, I definitely like that record better than the Zagora. Oh wow, wicked! Oh, brilliant, brilliant, yeah. brilliant. I'm more of a funk. I'm more, more of a funk guy. So that overall, that record was funkier. Yeah, I didn't like Zagora actually. 
I liked um, some. I like slow down. I love that track, and I love gonna make you mine. Um, and I, I love the what it did to the album. It sort of gave it a pulse to hang itself on. But um, really and truly, that I didn't really like that album. But a lot of people love it, so I'm I'm glad that it touched a lot of people. And I do like Chucky Boo better, and I I think we were starting to mature just at the right time. But you know, I think around Chucky Boo, people were starting to buy houses, and you know, it was getting like, <laughs> you know, people was like not trying to get in the studio so much. But for me, I was like. Come on now, this is the best job in the world. You're flying around the world, and people love you. Um, we are. Were, were you enjoying? Were you enjoying doing like the music videos and things like that? Will we say that again? Sorry. Were you enjoying doing music videos and things like that? No, I hate doing music videos. They took all day long, and they would never, never use one of our ideas. The only idea we ever they ever used of ours was Stay a Wild Child, that the Funkenstein, that Dr. Funkenstein type thing, which was so funny. I mean, we had that side, but then they still looked at us as if to say, well, I guess you think you're actors now, you know? And it was like, they put us down a little bit, but yeah, we had fun and it wasn't even like we were acting, we were just having fun. Um, but when we did those videos, a lot of the times, they would bring in someone who was the hot boy at the moment, someone who had just done a video with ABC or Tina Turner, and, you know, he'd done some work with them, and it came out good. And so whatever he said, we would have to do. Uh, and most of the videos were like that. And so we would just be called on set, you know, umpteen times to do the same scene over and over again. And we wouldn't know what it would look like until it's all finished. So it was a little bit daunting that the idea, um, all the storyboarding came from someone else. And there was one idea, one particular video that on my own, where I actually walked out of the, the, the video meeting, where the guy said, I'm going to put two TVs and get them to dance with you. That'd be Jane and Steve. You know? <laughs> Two televisions. I was like, no, I can't take this no more. But they made me do the video. So back in the day, as an artist, you know, you, you, you definitely got told what to do. But when hip hop came out, I noticed that hip hop rappers would get behind the video. They'd get behind the camera and they would orchestrate their own scenarios. Um, which that was a step forward because we were never able to do that in Virgin. <laughs> give you a beat and intend to get back in there. You know, we had no ideas that we could add. So it was really horrible doing them videos because we didn't know what they would look like in the end. We didn't know what they were going for. We would just get told, stand here, um, sing your verse, or stand here, sing your verse, and look angry or sing your verse, look surprised. Um, you know, it would just be total directed by- You were at their mercy. Yeah, and we wouldn't know what, and when we saw it, some most of the time we'd be like, oh, that looks crap. And then um, we'd have the record label sitting right, right there. So they'd be like, oh, it looks wonderful. Oh yes, you look great, Jane. And 
we'd be thinking, oh, okay, <laughs> well, what we're we gonna do? But it was a tool then, a big tool. And if you didn't have one, you didn't get airplay. So we had to do them, and it was part of the course. We hated them though. What, what about what about on stage? You know, after you were two or three records in, what to what extent were you doing? You know, actual shows. Um, sorry, say the question one more time. Uh, Saint Carl, as far as like touring or doing, uh, you know, concerts, what what was your involvement at that point? Two or three records in. Uh, well, we tried to ask for tour support. But record label wouldn't give us tour support. I mean, I think um, Jane had hooked up a meeting with uh, a manager called George Smith, and he managed Bobby Brown for a little while. And he managed, um, uh, I think he was married to Pebbles at some point, and he had some. See, he had some some resources in the music industry, um, and he put us on tour with Freddie Jackson. <clears throat> that was the first tour that we ever did. But as far as MCA, see MCA bought Lucens as a license for America. So we wasn't signed to an American record label and our records were being made by Virgin and they would literally just license them to MCA. So the, the main investors were in England and in England, even though Lucens were all over the radio, we weren't really generating that much money because we weren't getting national airplay. Um, so the records would sell more in America, but the Americans were only licensing the band. They weren't putting money into it. So I, I guess if we were signed, what I'm trying to say is if we were signed to MCA, we would probably have gone on the road a lot, lot quicker. But because we were signed to Virgin, and Virgin had figured out, well, let's let them do PAs because PAs are cheap and we don't have to pay for no tour support. And then they didn't really see us as a money-making group. Or maybe it was that we didn't, we didn't play live and they must have thought, well, these guys are a studio band, you know, and we might be taking a risk by putting them out on the road. But whatever it was, they wouldn't put us out on the road. So we managed to tour on Chucky Boo. That was like at the end, uh, really, the, all the good stuff had already come and gone. <laughs> you know what I mean? But in the end, it did give us the experience that we needed. I just wish that we could have gone out a lot quicker, but it was hard getting the record label to put up the, the cost. But you see, if you're not getting your record played in, in England, when it comes for tour support, you're not going to get the record company backing you because you can't sell you can't sell tickets if you're not on the radio. So we would be on the radio, but it wouldn't be on the right radio stations. It would be on these little ghetto stations, you know, a little, you know, a guy from Hackney might play and a guy from Stoke Newton, a guy from Islington. But, you know, that that radio airplay that's going to take you all the way, you need that so that when you sell tickets everyone knows you you've got top high charting records and you've got top tens and top fives then you can sell tickets but because that was never reached um you know we didn't i don't think that they thought we would sell any tickets so they didn't put on the road and 
we didn't all the good songs went by and we didn't get to go on and tour them until at the end really what about what about you uh, personally carl did you feel uh, and even today, uh, comfortable on stage? Do you like performing in front of people or do you prefer being in a studio environment? I think I prefer being in the studio, but I'm getting used to the whole, I'm telling the truth, I'm terrified to death of singing in front of people. <laughs> totally terrified. Jane is very good at singing in front of people. She does that whole, she's like, you know, um, she gets the the stage um, to be, she's comfortable on it, you know, whereas with me, um, there's a lot of factors that I don't like about stage. Like if you move away from your monitor, you may not hear the sound as you did. So, you know, people like to walk up and down on stage. That would probably not be me because I know I don't want the sound to change. Um, and, and then there would be the, uh, having to sing over a live group. Now, when you're in the, in the studio, you can turn the music down <laughs> and you could just sing and you can hear your voice and Hey, presto, um, sounds great. And then you record it. But when you're singing over a drummer, um, it's hard to keep in tune and keep that power. And that's the one thing that I really struggled with because when I sung hard, I would go off key a little bit. I'd be shouty, you know, it wouldn't be that soft tone, that comfortable tone that I normally have. So I really, um, I really felt uncomfortable at first. Well, Jane was good. So she would carry that side of it. And I figured, well, in the studio, I'm the, I'm kind of the one. So, you know, and Jane is the lead singer. She's quite comfortable being the lead singer. So it kind of worked, mm -hmm. but uh, it's hard. It's hard. I think so, being live, if you get out there young, then it's great. If you get out there like when you're in your teen, then you get it. But if you get to like 24, 25, and you haven't done it yet, it's hard. Not, not everyone can be as uninhibited as Frank Zappa, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> So the, yeah. the the last record and the, the next one ended up being the last one, right? So it was uh, mm -hmm. um, "Look How Long" in uh, 1990. Um, right. So you had mentioned about how things were starting to kind of fall apart. Um, knowing that what was going on in the background, you know, it's 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 a strong record, especially if you think about that, right? So uh, yeah. How, how do you, you feel about, about that? What? Oh, sorry. You just said it's a something record. I didn't hear that bit. So Considering what you had said was going on in the background, Carl. Okay. I'm yeah, saying yeah. it's it's a very strong record, especially. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is the thing now, right? Now, at this point, everyone's gone out and bought houses and nice cars. And I figured maybe it was time for me to do that because I was driving my old Jeep around and um, my mother was getting sick of me making my bedroom into a studio and there was wires everywhere and it was just, you know, I needed to get out of the house. So she, she said, look, if you get a house, I'll come live with you, but build a studio in it. So, uh, okay. I went and picked out a house and I built this studio. And when I built the studio, uh, I said, right, mom, come, let's go. Let's, let's move. 
She's like, no, I just said that to get you out of the house. I ain't moving in with you. <laughs> so that was the end of that. So I was in this house now on my own. And um, I had no furniture. Um, I had nothing. I just sort of finished the house. What happened was the, the builders had ripped me off. Um, they took my money and they said they were going to do X, Y, Z. And a whole 18 months later, the house was unfinished. The only thing that was finished was the studio, um, the kitchen, and the plumbing. Uh, it didn't wasn't decorated. Uh, it was just like a shell. But because we had the studio, I didn't really mind it too much. It was very rustic. And I've recently put pictures up of the room that we did the work in. But once you got in there and you heard the vibes that we were dealing with, it was really, really a cool place to be. And so what happened now, I've got this um, studio and this house and I keep um, asking Steve and Jane, man, you got to come up, man. We got our own studio now. You know, we can write songs till four o'clock in the morning if we want. And I thought that they would be really like, yeah. Um, but they they kind of said, yeah, okay. Yeah, I can't wait to see it, you know. I'll be over soon, you know. And it would just never happen. Uh, and then I met um, a guy called Kenny, Kenny Nicholas. And um, he introduced me to one of his friends, Trevor, um, and what happened was these two guys were songwriters and they, one of them drove a cab. The other one was a courier and they really wanted to break into the music industry. So um, they kept saying, so Carl, you got all this equipment here. So what are you going to do? I said, well, uh, I don't know, because I, I was hoping that Jane and Steve would come over and we'd be recording here. They said, oh, all right. Okay. Well. If you ever need any help, give us a shout. Uh, okay. So then while no one was around, I started to fool around with some music. And I had, within maybe six weeks, I'd come up with some, you know, clever little, some nice little tunes, you know, some good little samples. And I was happy. And and then I played them to some other people. Um, one guy said that he knew an engineer that I could um, use. So I got this guy, his name's David Emanuel, to come over. And he engineered for me and helped me to put, take the songs to another level, make them into, um, you know, arrangements like intro, chorus, verse, and recorded them onto um, 16-track reel. Um, I had a little Fostex, like a little baby version of a 24-track uh, in, my, in my little studio. And, you know, within... I say two months. Within two months, I had most of that album the way the way it sounds today. Um, luckily, a friend of mine, a guy that we worked with on Five Star, a guy called Gordon Mill, Milne, M-I-L-N-E, rest in peace. Um, he, um, wow, that guy was such a great engineer. He had... Um, got in trouble with his wife. He was working over Christmas um, with, I think it's Steve, Steve Levine, Culture Club. And his wife gave him a warning. She said, look, you know, if you don't come on for Christmas, you ain't going to see no one when you get here. Um, but the work was, you know, they were 
doing Culture Club and they were doing a lot of great things. So he was asked to stay and he stayed. He said, look, I'm coming, but I just need to stay for a little while. And when he got back home, he had no wife and no kids. So he was a bit down in the dumps and looking for a project. And a friend of mine said, um, you should call him. This guy's a good engineer. So <laughs> I called him and he said, yeah, um, um, what do you want to do? Do you want to record it in your house or do you want to record it at studio? So I said, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you um, pick out some equipment for me that I could record it at the house if I wanted to and mix it at the house if I wanted to. He's like, really? That should be fun. And so he took it on like a project. So he went and got a half inch machine and all of these big, I mean, it cost me a fortune, but um, it was worth it in the end. And so I had these tape machines. I had the MCI um, half inch um, two track. So it's like a master machine. After you've done all your work, you can master onto this machine. And this machine would always tighten up tape compression, would tighten up the songs and make them sound even nicer, sweeter. I didn't really experience that with um, 24 track songs, but I, I guess I did, but I didn't know it was there. But this was beautiful now. So we were starting to make these tracks really nice. And I was really getting excited. And I was like saying, like, Steve, man, you got to come over, man. So Steve came over and he played on a song called Love's Got Me. Uh, he did the keyboards on that. And he was he was quite impressed. He was like, oh, man, I'm coming over next week. And he never turned up. And Jane, she always said, yeah, I'm coming over. And she then she would turn up, but she wouldn't turn up to sing. She would turn up because she was going to the airport or she was coming from the airport or she was going to meet a friend to have some dinner or something. She was just popping in, never turned up to say, look, let's do some music. And it was getting really frustrating. So I had these songs and these songs were just waiting for Jane and Steve really to embrace them. But I think at this point now, we've gone about six months into me recording on my own and the songs were getting better and better and I think it got to the point where Jane and Steve were not involved in the songs and yet they sounded like they could be loose end songs you know um, and so basically what happened was these two guys that I worked with Kenny and um, Trevor they were songwriters and I would make a beat and give them a, a chorus and or they would come up with a chorus and they'd go home and write the lyric and come back the next day and we're like right let's record the chorus and we record the chorus and then we fling a couple of verses in and it was so much fun it was just going time was going by fast the songs were being made really fast so like i'd say between easter and october that whole album was done i had a, a, another friend a guy called Lawrence, one of the first guys I worked with in the church, he told me that he had a sister. He said to me, Carl, when are you going to get Jane to record on these songs? So I said, oh, I don't know if she's going to record. But I've got a sister, she can sing. I said, really? He said, yeah, yeah. So I said, all right, bring her down. So he brings down this little girl. Uh, her name's Linda Carrier. And we, the first thing she sings is, look how long we've been together. I think that and Jane. And everyone's like, whoa. 
And so we just basically put her on the track. And that's the first thing she sings on the album. And then she sings, Don't Be a Fool. Um, and, you know, I was really, really excited. Um, what happened with Don't Be a Fool now is that Jane heard Don't Be a Fool um, with the hook. And I said to her to sing, if you want it, just sing the hook, please. Don't have to sing nothing else, just the hook. So I said, sing the hook. She goes, um, I said, don't be a fool, don't throw your life away. And she would kept on saying, don't throw your life away. Something like that. And I was like, no, that's an ad lib, Jane. Just, just sing it straight, you know, so a five-year-old could sing it. And she was not having it. She was, she got upset. She said, look, if I'm going to sing this, I'm going to have to sing it my way. Well, if you sing like that, we, we can't use it. Because we already had a song called I Can't Wait. Where James did that. Because the song goes, I can't wait another minute for your love. But Jane went, I can't wait. And to me, it messed up the ambiance of the stillness of, of the energy of, the, of that hook. And I, I always said to her, look, James, if you sung that, as an ad lib, as an ad lib, it would have been great. But the whole chorus like that every time is too much. But she she wouldn't want to hear that. So when she tried it on "Don't Be a Fool," now I was not having it. So I said, "No, nah, we're not going to use that." 